everyone. This is Liz Easton, and I wanted to take a quick second to invite you to listen in to the PC Book Club. <laughs> Wait, I need to start again. <laughs> Hi, everyone. This is Liz Easton, and I wanted to take a quick second to invite you to listen to the PC Book Club, a.k.a. PCBC. Every so often, Ricardo Avila and I chat about the books that you should be reading right now. It's just like sitting on your own private book club discussion, only there's probably slightly more references to true crime and Charles Dickens. <laughs> I did not write this. <laughs> um, we may have to re-record that anyway, because I think you just said it's just like sitting on your own <laughs> private book club. She did. That was great. Sitting on a book club. Sitting on a private book club. That's pretty racy. Sorry. Should I try again? It's just like sitting in on your own private book club discussion, only there's probably slightly more references to true crime and Charles Dickens. So if you're looking for the class with an occasional dose of the sass, then check out the PC Book Club right here on the Popping Collars feed. Class and sass. Love it. <laughs> I was praying. Hey, I'm Greg. And I'm Betsy. And this is Going on 30, a Poppin' Collar side project where we lend an ear. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. You had to be done, though. That had to be done. And can I just say, like, this early to mid-90s time, there were ears getting chopped off in, like, every Hollywood movie. Why? Why do you think it's the ear? I don't know, man. It was weird. Why not the, why not the finger? Keanu Reeves, what was the Keanu Reeves, um, Cameron Diaz movie? And I think there was an Reeves. ear lost in that movie, too. Anyway. I think it's because we we wanted a new appendage. <laughs> That's right. That wasn't fingers and toes are boring. Right. Let's do something new. <laughs> and noses, that's just weird. <laughs> that's right. All right, let me get back to the intro. We look okay, here to movies that were nominated or should have been nominated for Best Picture 30 years ago. This month, we're looking at Reservoir Dogs. Hold on, um, you just said that D-A-W-G-S. You <laughs> said that like you're a Georgia Bulldogs fan. Reservoir Dogs. Go Dogs! How about them dogs? How about them dogs? <laughs> <laughs> your names, Mr. White, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Pink. Why am I Mr. Pink? Who cares what your name is? Yeah, that's easy for you to say. You're Mr. White. You have a cool-sounding name. Let's go to work. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. What happens if the manager won't give you the diamonds? Cut off one of his fingers. The little one. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I guess I'm falling for the chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. If they hadn't have done what I told them not to do, They'd still be alive. It's so hard to keep this smile from my face. I'm all over the place. You're acting like a first year thief. I'm acting like a professional. And your family all got caught. Slap you on my back and say. Choice we've been doing 10 years. Taking out some shit for months. Ain't no choice at all. Bam. Bam. Bam, 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 bam. You're under arrest, sugar. 
Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Chris Penn, Steve Buscemi, Lawrence Tierney, and Michael Madsen. They're the Reservoir Dogs. Hey, Joe, I'm going to shoot this guy. All right, fun fun fact before I get to the log line for this movie. The reason that it's even called this is because, what, there was a movie that Tarantino would always recommend at the video store called Au Revoir, Au Revoir Les Enfants. And uh, somebody came into the video store and said, I ain't watching no Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> so there you go. There you go. There you go. Fun facts. Uh. Betsy, I have a brief description of this movie. Would you like to hear it? Would love to. Uh, Yeah, this isn't good. Here we go. A botched robbery indicates... Wait, indicates? Okay, let me start over again. Do you need to edit edit this? Are you sure? I would not write it this way. I'm going to leave all this in, but... Great. I always, I always struggle with, <laughs> I always struggle with like the IMDb descriptions of these movies. Yes. Yes. A botched robbery indicates a police informant, and the pressure mounts in the aftermath at a warehouse. Crime begets violence as the survivors, veteran Mister White, newcomer Mister Orange, psychopathic parolee Mister Blonde, bickering weasel Mister Pink. And Aww. nice guy Eddie <laughs> unravel. Bickering <laughs> <laughs> weasel. Steve Buscemi. He's probably called Weasley a lot. Hey, Steve Buscemi him. is the most competent person in this movie. Okay, yes. Best. Here we go. Here What's we your go. history with the movie Reservoir Dogs? Okay, Dogs. <laughs> I am. <laughs> I believe I saw this in the theater. I believe. I think we've crossed into that time. I would have been old enough to see this movie. Mm-hmm. Definitely rated R. Mm-hmm. But it's like, oh man, like I, it, it's it's weird because this is probably my scene. What year? When did this come out? We're in the Oscars of '93, so this is '92. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think I think I would have seen it. Either that, or it was like at a Chicago theater that played movies forever, and I saw it when I went to college. Yeah. In '93, maybe. Yeah. But um. But I feel like I saw it at the theater and it was it was just a revelation because it was a movie that that maybe my parents were not seeing and right. not quite understanding the appeal of right. and right. only seeing the violence and not really seeing the dialogue and other pieces of it. Yeah. So it felt like it was for me, not for me specifically, but for my generation. It was a Gen X movie. Like, that's what it felt like to me. It was a new voice. It was something. And, and I have to get past now all the Tarantino cliches that I can heap upon things to kind of look at this as an, as an original yeah. moment. So I think rewatching it, I captured. When did that. you when did you get the soundtrack for this movie? Oh, everybody, man. Everybody Who did the soundtrack. So I mean, uh, did you get it right Steve, away? Or Stephen later? Wright. I got it pretty soon. I, yeah. It was so good. It was so mm-hmm. good. Super sounds in the 70s. I mean, that's what's hilarious. Is it's, it's like a Gen X movie, but it has this nostalgic soundtrack, you know, to it. And he does the same thing with Pulp Fiction later. Yes. Like, you know, sort of playing off of the nostalgia of kind of the generation right. Well, I guess it was kind of like old Gen Xers is like who this would appeal to. Right. So and it's like. 
Maybe, like but it is of the 70s. It's pulling on your parents' generation, but not all of like the hippie stuff. And like right. at least that's what was permeating white culture yeah. was looking at like classic rock and stuff like that, as opposed to classic soul or like right. different 70s music. You know, when I was a kid at probably at the time this came out, if somebody said 70s, I would say disco. I would not right. have said funk and R&B and that sort of thing. Yeah. You know, yeah. I would have been like Pam Greer. Who are you talking about? <laughs> right. So this is really and, and maybe some of it is also Tarantino's interest in black culture and right. and pulling that into his his films and and that sort of thing as well. So I came to Reservoir Dogs after Pulp Fiction. So Pulp Fiction was my intro to Tarantino. First time I watched Pulp Fiction, did not understand it, did not know what was going on, like was totally kind of blown away by like the violence and the cursing of the movie. Like I was mm -hmm. just like, it was a little overwhelming at the time. So like mid nineties was where I found my footing with like early nineties indie stuff. So that's mm -hmm. when I like got a sort of a back log education in like Soderbergh, Kevin Smith, um, Tarantino, early Cohen's, uh, Spike Lee's early 90s stuff. So like mid 90s was when I was getting all that. So I had to go back to mm -hmm. Reservoir Dogs. It's kind of like um, I liken it to, you know, when like a band has a bunch of albums, but then they have one that becomes really big. And then you realize that they have like this whole you know, yes, discography that exists before the big album, uh, like Butthole Surfers or something like that. You know, it's right. kind of like that, you know, or they might be giants. It's like they have like all this stuff that you can go back and experience leading up to like Flood, you know, or something like that. Yeah, right, right, right. So, yeah, so I got to Reservoir Dogs late and I and so my framework for Reservoir Dogs is very much influenced by Pulp Fiction. So it's like I have the Pulp Fiction experience first. And so I see Reservoir Dogs through the Pulp Fiction lens. Yeah. Meanwhile, I since I had Reservoir Dogs first, I was very excited when Pulp Fiction came out. Like I yeah. kind of had this like, oh, it's his next thing. Like, let's all go premiere night, blah, blah, blah. Like that sort of stuff. That was That's Jackie Brown for me. Jackie Brown was. Um, uh, got it. Got it. Um, so, it's Skokie, Illinois. That's right. So, general thoughts about the movie, Betsy? What do you What do you want to talk about? First, I was shocked by how much of this movie I had memorized. Mm -hmm. Just full dialogues, and yeah. that we would recite them to one. I'm guessing. Yeah. I'm thinking that's how it's repetition. I think I also had like little sound clips on my computer. Mm -hmm. Like it was in college and like, so it was like Reservoir Dogs or Simpsons or little things or, or um, Animaniacs. Like I had like these little, little sound clips that were fun. Right. Uh, also just struck again by how, how attractive some of these actors are, mm -hmm. you know, a 30 years younger. I'm not saying Harvey Keitel is not attractive now, but co-producer of Reservoir Dogs, Harvey Keitel. That's right. And star and Danny, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, really seeing seeing this as a project for a Harvey Keitel to jump into, which I I kind of like that idea of that backstory mm -hmm. of this kid. I mean, it is it is Tarantino laying down his early 
right. loves and cliches of his work, right? Yeah. Guys sitting around, typically in a food establishment, <laughs> talking about things. No, doing bad. Talking about yeah, gangsters talking about doing gangsters bad doing bad things. Talking, <laughs> yeah. but then talking about esoteric pop culture, right? Like yeah. a virgin, you know, mm-hmm. Royale with cheese. I mean, like you can see it all coming when Tim Roth is there with his his like undercover contact guy. Like you see the echoes of Pulp Fiction in the yeah. two of them sitting in that diner, and mm-hmm. also just a love for L.A., Los Angeles culture, car culture old cars, music, like there's just a lot of West Coast, I think, happening in this. Whereas we've had, we have had other models of guys sitting around and talking. Like if you want to talk about the movie Diner or something like that, they're not gangsters or Goodfellas or something like that. But that's a very East Coast mentality. This is a West Coast. It is a different groove. It is a different vibe. It's also a different language. Yeah. So you're having to get all this lingo, all this stuff down. And some of that becomes the attraction of the dialogue. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, it has, like, because it's set on the West Coast, it has kind of, like, a bit of a Western feel to it. Mm-hmm. That, like, instead of gangsters, they feel kind of like outlaws a little bit. Yes. Um, and it has, like, a very, you know, just speaking to the L.A. of it all, it has a very, like, like emphasis on aesthetic right so it's like Mm -hmm. the the slow-mo walk shot you know over the credits is very like you know it's very sort of cool gangster which is kind of what you're Mm -hmm. focused on in the west right and the the suits and the sunglasses and Mm -hmm. you know all of that stuff i think you know it it because i hadn't watched it a long time it actually took me into I'm going to say, sadly, um, that uh, Bugsy movie we had to watch. Right, but no. thinking about West Coast gangster organized crime kind of activity, that this is an inheritor of that trend, right? This is this is this is a child of that of that historically. Looking mm-hmm. at this film, and I thought that was really it was really interesting. I just kind of hadn't noticed the 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 West coastness of it all until I watched it again, but just, I love the jumping around in time. I love the, where were people? And it's not like, I mean, maybe you're kind of watching it, wondering who the informant is and what happened, but you're, it's it's just, is laying out all these puzzle pieces to put it together. And you can see how in doing that, it's so creative yet. Also he's saving money. You know, Mm -hmm. that warehouse is the main place where we are hanging. We've got probably a couple of street closures that we really had to do, but not a ton. And and the oh, and the cops are such douchebags. Yeah. Like every cop that shows up, it is like a guy dropped out of an Animal House frat movie. And you're like, oh, <laughs> this guy is the worst. And our guys, they're a little bit, they're not classically handsome, you know, but they're all really attractive and and like, you know, yeah. just you know, it's it's um it was it was just I, I did still have to fast forward. Through the ear scene a little bit. Oh, the, screaming, okay. the screaming is tough. The the, the gun. Yeah, because it cuts way, away. The way, does the pan away. Yeah. So you don't. He does. But it, like man. the screaming is tough. The um, when the cops get shot in the car was a little hard. Like it's just it's just aggressive body jiggling. Like mm-hmm. there there's the, the violence of it is difficult. And the hard part yeah. is I don't I've never seen someone shot like that. I don't know if that's realistic. I have no idea. Right. Yeah. 
Um, well, I mean, you know, it starts yeah. with like Tim Roth, like his gut sort of coming out of this, you know, in the back. Seat. Yeah, there's just yeah. so much blood, and it's it's just heightened by the white interior of the car. It's yes, like, <laughs> yes, and his white shirt. And I want to just be like, dude, quit moving around. <laughs> Somebody put pressure on that. I'm like, where is the basic, basic? first aid in this film i have now watched i probably at this point might have you know not yet probably right timeline wise but would have watched enough er in a year after this to know that somebody he should have been putting some pressure take that jacket off and put it on your gut something yeah a couple of things from what you just said talking about pop culture yes a thousand percent i think a lot of that has to do with the soundtrack and the fact that he put dialogue on the soundtrack the Mm -hmm. you know the let's oh yeah maybe that's yeah there we go let's go get a taco yeah yeah it's like you know he he embedded that on the soundtrack and he did that with like the next two i know pulp fiction had dialogue i'm pretty sure jackie brown had dialogue too yeah um so it became like the dialogue became part of the music of the movie a little bit. Um, yeah. So well, because there is there's there's a staccato rhythm. There's yeah. a rhythm to how he writes. Right. Yeah. Dialogue. I mean, he's a really great dialogue writer. Dialogue mm-hmm. is really like it's it's deceptively hard to write dialogue. It's hard to write how people talk, but it's hard to write how people talk in movies. You know what I'm saying? It's it's yeah yeah. The other thing is that, yeah, when it comes to talking pop culture, I remember Linklater's Slacker was the first movie that was like, oh, this movie sounds like college. Like it wasn't, you know, um, necessarily about pop culture stuff all the time, but it was just kind of like what it sounded like to hang out in a dorm room and listen to people talk. Like sometimes there was philosophy. Sometimes it was inane. Sometimes it seemed enlightening. You know, it was a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, but Clerks was the first time that I remember like hearing somebody talk about pop culture and like sort of interrogate it in like an internet kind of way. And uh-huh. like Tarantino is sort of doing the same thing here too, um, where it's like, you know, oh yeah, who did build the Death Star? Like, what is that? You know, and it's like, it's a dumb question, but it's fun to like go down that rabbit hole for an hour, you know, with your friends. Yes. Yes. Well, because it reminds me then of like swingers. Yeah. Or, you know, and then you would have friends in college who like talk like those people. You're like, mm-hmm. dude, you gotta lay off, <laughs> lay off the dogs. It's like I'm <laughs> hanging out with Michael Madsen in here. He, his last name is Vega, right? Mm-hmm. Isn't it that the same last name as John Travolta's character? And Yeah. So Tarantino has right. always said that they were brothers he says that vincent mm. and Vic vega are brothers and um he, for a while i think he had like a plan to make like a vega brothers short or a vega brothers comic book or something like that but he, huh. never, he never did um he always has because you know he's created like a world where all of this stuff kind of exists together like yes you know it it's I mean, it's cliche nowadays to talk about alternate realities, but this is kind of like Tarantino's alternate reality of the world. And so it's in his mind, all of these things exist in the same world. So Django exists in the same world as this. Inglorious Bastards exists in this world. And these are all Mm -hmm. like histories where 
it's not a shared history that we have in our real world, right? In this world, like the Manson family was massacred by Brad Pitt, you know? Yeah. Uh, right. Whereas in our world, they did their heinous acts. And so it's like, yeah. So, so he, he kind of, um, I think he, he constructs these worlds as if all of these things kind of existed and that the reality of the Tarantino world is one that has led to massive violence because of how history kind of played out. Okay. So I have just a couple of things, a couple of small okay. things. So I was thinking back to our player conversation and, you know, those big boxy suits of the player and stuff like that. Yes. Double breastedness. This feels way more modern than yes. that movie did. And yes. I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know. I don't know if it's the soundtrack or the facial hair or like what it uh, is that's in this movie that f- makes it feel like it's more up to date than the player. But it feels more up to date than the player. Is it possible? that Stephen Wright is the best thing about this movie. I enjoy it. I don't think he's the best part. Okay. I love I think it's a great, I love the continuity <laughs> of that throughout the film though, when you're moving through time. Love Stephen Wright in this movie. As a matter of fact, he he may be one of my favorite DJs in movies. And so oh, I started no. thinking and Betsy. Oh no. <laughs> I fell right into it. What a trap. What a trap. I can't. Oh, I feel hornswoggled. Okay, go okay, ahead. Your top movies, DJs. DJs. Yeah, okay. Top five DJs. Top five radio DJs in movies. Here we go. Okay. Oh, wait. Wait, I have an honorable mention. Of course you do. Because well, he's, yeah. not from, he's not from a movie. Is it from a TV show? He's from a TV show. But, okay. he's, uh, but he's maybe yours and my favorite DJ of all time. At West is Beverly David, High. It's David Silver. He's <laughs> a great DJ. It's David uh, Silver from 902. It's David Silver. It's David Silver. <laughs> I did this by actor, not by character. So I'm just going to okay. give you the actor. Number five. Clint Eastwood from Play Misty for me. Okay. Okay. Number four. Wolfman Jack from American Graffiti. Really good. Yeah. Similar, um, similar usage here. Yeah. It's yeah, what Wolfman sure. Jack does for a living. So, well, I mean, well, it's also it's LA, it's cars, it's blah, blah, blah. I mean, the influences of this movie, they're all over. Okay, yeah. All right. Number three, Sam Jackson, speaking of Tarantino, Sam Jackson from Do the Right Thing. Yeah. Number two, mm-hmm. Howard Stern from Private Parts. Private Parts, pretty good movie. Have you seen it lately? I, ha- I have not seen it lately. It's not bad. It isn't. It kind of holds up. It's not like it's probably not a an era of his career that Howard Stern is particularly proud of. No, maybe not. <laughs> but but it's pretty entertaining. And the number one radio DJ in movies, you've gotta think it's Robin Williams in Good Morning Vietnam. You gotta think it is. Definitely. Yeah. You just set the camera up and say, just start talking. And yeah. Robin Williams just blah. <laughs> it's just it'll be perfect. Adrian Croner, Croner. Oh, that's right, Adrian Croner. Speaking of holding up, um, there's definitely some dialogue in this movie that does not hold up. Yeah, we may get yeah. a little bit of that later on. Tarantino. Yeah. yeah. So he is. So it should be said, Tarantino is steeped in 
black cinema, black exploitation cinema, crime, gangster movies. Like he loves a lot of that stuff. Foreign film, he loves a lot of it. And mm-hmm. he allows it to slip into his dialogue in a way that you're kind of like, mm, I don't know, man. I don't know if that's if you're allowed to write that. But um, but also we've got, but we've got anti-Semitism, we've oh, got yeah. anti-black race, we've got anti-Asia, anti-Japanese, mm. you know, it is yeah, you know, it is misogyny upgrade. I was yeah. going to say, we can maybe talk about it in longer form later. I will just say just really quickly, he has gone on the record many times as saying this is dialogue that lives in the mouths of awful people in my movies. Yes. <laughs> and yes. I understand that while at the same yes. time also recognizing that, like, you know, this is really problematic dialogue and people who hold up this dialogue is like, Oh, and you know, give it memorize here, it. Here, here yep. it is. We're we're really taking it to the woke army of the world uh by re- reciting this dialogue. I think they misunderstand what Tarantino is trying to do. Agree. So, best scene from the movie. That's hard. It is hard. But I think that one of the best scenes, because I think it's got some of the best because I love like I love the kitchen scene with like Kaitel and and Buscemi. In the kitchen mm-hmm. when he's trying to lay out for him, you know, they're trying to go in another room away from the guy who's bleeding and dying. <laughs> and to try to, you know, A, get some of the blood off Harvey Keitel, B, have a cigarette, C, try to figure out if this was a setup job or not. Did you kill anybody? A few cops. No real people? Just cops. Man, could you believe Mr. Blonde? I, mean, I don't want to kill anybody. If I gotta get out that door and you're standing in my way, one way or the other, you're getting out of my way. That's the way I look at it. Choice between doing 10 years. Ain't no choice at all. But I ain't no madman either. Can't work with a guy like that. Hey, look, did you see what happened to anybody else? Me and Orange jumped in the car, ground floored it. After that, I don't know what went down. That point was every man for himself, man. As far as Mr. Blonde and Mr. Blue are concerned, I ain't got the five years, because once I got out, I never looked back. What do you think? What do I think? I mean, uh, you know, the cops either caught him or killed him. Got a chance to punch through, you found a hole. You don't think it's possible one of them got a hold of diamonds and... No, no way. No way. so sure. I got the diamonds. <laughs> my boy. Yeah. And I do like that that exchange. But the exchange with Tim Roth right now and the cop. Yeah. Tim yeah. After he shoots Mr. Blonde is a is a great scene. And because they're they're both sitting there horribly wounded. Mm-hmm. And you know, I thought, oh yeah, I think I met you like three months ago. Like, and then they're they're trying to try to have like this normal conversation after the cop is just feeling his life has been saved, right? Yeah. And but just Tim Roth acting. I remember him. I remember what, seeing this movie and being like, "Who is that guy?" Yeah, he's so good. He done he done a ton of British stuff. 
before. <laughs> yeah. But had not really. I mean, I feel like this was the movie that broke him in the United States. I think so. Um, yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I I saw this movie through the lens of Pulp Fiction. So I knew him as, was it Pumpkin? Yep. And Honey Bunny. So, yes. So I knew him from that scene with like Sam Jackson and stuff originally. Yes. But like, there's just so much that he has to do in this movie. Like, he has to do the yes. injured version of the character, the uninjured version of the character, yes. the undercover version of the character. Yes. You know, just like all this. Yes. He's got a lot of stuff. And so, yeah. So it's really good. He's the most, he's the most well rounded character because we know more about his life even though you have some feelings about Kaitel's character you just don't really know him in the same way but yeah I thought that scene was really great hey you what's your name Marvin Marvin what Marvin Nash. Listen to me, Marvin. I'm a. Listen to me, Marvin Nash. I'm a cop. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know? <laughs> yeah, your name's Freddie something. Moondike. Freddy Moondike. <laughs> Frankie Fischetti introduced us about five months ago. <laughs> Freddy. <laughs> How do I look? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Um, I was a big fan of the confrontation scenes between Madsen and Keitel. The, you know, the, are you going to bark all day, little doggy scene? Um, I, uh, so... It's so funny to think that in the span of about a year and a half, we've had like three Harvey Keitel movies, which may speak to kind of what he was up to in the early 90s as far as, you know, being in low budget stuff along with big budget stuff. He was doing a high low. He was doing a real high low because I think he knew where the creative energy was. Right. So why would why wouldn't he refund this film? It's going to be an awesome role for him. Yeah, you would think so. And I mean, you know, he was just in Thelma and Louise. Same with mm-hmm. Madsen, right? So it was neat to see the two of them back together, but in a very different Very context, different. Yeah. You know? And so, um, and also, like, going from a big budget movie, like a Thelma and Louise, right? Ridley Scott movie, to now, like, an indie darling Tarantino movie, but all, but doing it together, 
it felt really like I, I was I was glad that there was a scene between those two actors. And I just think mm-hmm. I think Madsen is just so cool. He's always been cool. Like he's never yes. not cool in a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kaitel is, you know, just he's he's one of these actors that's on par with like a De Niro or a Pacino or something like that. Like he yes. takes the craft really seriously. You kids shouldn't play so rough. Somebody's going to start crying. What happened to you? Figured you were dead. Hey, you okay? Did you see what happened to Blue? We didn't know what happened to you and Blue. That's what we were wondering about. What? Come on, man. Look, Brown is dead. Orange got it in the belly. He's Enough! Alive. Enough! You better start talking, asshole. We're already freaked out. Okay, let's talk. We think we got a rat in the house. I guarantee we got a rat in the house. What makes you say that? Is that supposed to be funny? Look, we think this place ain't safe. This place just ain't secure anymore. We're leaving. You should go with us. Nobody's going anywhere. We're out of here. Don't take another step, Mr. White. What's this guy's problem? What's my problem? With any trick you have, a madman almost gets me shot! They set off the alarm. They deserve what they got. You almost killed me! If I know what kind of guy you were, I never would have agreed to work with you. <clears throat> are you gonna bark all day, little doggy? Or are you gonna bite? What was that? I'm sorry, I didn't catch it. Would you repeat it? Are you gonna bark all day, little doggy? But you have to remember, for Thelma Louise, who's the director again? Why am I, Ridley just, Scott. Just, Ridley Scott. That Ridley Scott put his butt on the line for that movie. Yeah. Because nobody wanted to do that movie nobody with two female leads. Yeah. Right. You know, this is good. Who's going to watch this movie? And so it's like Kaitel is like taking risks, and that's what you know. He's digging tunnels. He's you know he's taking risks. He's going out there. He's doing stuff. Right. Like it, and that. Uh, that element of him is really cool. Yeah. I mean, we're going to have him. When does the piano come out? It's either next year or the year after. So year he's, he's yeah. going to be an Australian movie for Jane Campion. And um, okay. Well, we're talking about actors. Uh, who's the best performance in the movie. For me, it's like a tie between like Roth and Kaitel. Oh, really? Because I've I got Buscemi. Then Buscemi. Then Buscemi. So, <laughs> I mean, it is so hard. It is so hard i've got Buscemi because he's still young enough in his acting career like he had just Mm -hmm. like quit the fire department or whatever in new york at this point so like he's still young enough in his acting career that it feels like really authentic it feels like it's not like layered with a bunch of acting stuff it's just the normal guy sort of doing his thing you know yeah i agree with you that he's probably the person if i'm gonna have to be trapped with anyone in this film (laughs) Because all he wants, Greg, he just wants him to be what? Professional. Can we just be professional? That is a theme I think is so interesting. The idea of like, look, guys, like, (laughs) there's a code here. And why aren't we all following it? Right. I I say this at church all the time. Can we just just be professional? (laughs) Like, what are you doing? 
Come on. <laughs> I mean, oh it's God. so funny. It's so funny. And mm-hmm. like that we, you know, that all, you know, there's no honor among thieves or, you know, whatever, however you want to look at that. But it's uh, that element for him. Mm-hmm. And then he doesn't tip. And tip. Right. It's it's tip. Greg. <laughs> And then they get it. Then it becomes that's the thing about Tarantino is like it ranges from like pop culture to like societal issues and how much waitresses get paid and and the the pay inequity for women. Yeah, I think I think I think Roth did a really good job of that. And Cart Keitel, you're rooting for him. You're you're feeling I feel a little more warm feelings even for him over over Buscemi in a way in terms of like. Oh man, I hope Cartel gets out of here alive. No, and no. that in that element when he's cradling Roth at the end, he's like, "Oh, you know, looks like we're gonna do some time, right?" Yeah. And that moan he gives up. He's totally betrayed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that moan is heartbreaking, and I knew it was coming. I remembered it because it had yeah. just imprinted on yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, all the as an ensemble, they're all really great. Madsen's great. I mean, and is there a Penn brother that doesn't? Chris Penn, can we talk about Chris Penn? Is there, do they all have to do something, either acting or singing or something? Like all the pens have to like do all the pens. Well, because isn't it wasn't dad artistic too? I guess so. I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know the history of the Penn family, but I just know that they're like every time I turn around, there's a yeah, Penn. Yeah, Leo Penn. Right. Their dad, Leo Penn's a director. Okay. Their mom, Eileen Ryan, is an actress. So yeah. So they're uh, they're yeah. they're Hollywood family. Problematic. Um problematic people, but you know. True. Well, and artists, it's tough so. too, you know, because Chris Penn is one of the few people in this movie who is no longer living. Mm-hmm. Um, that he died when he was 40 or something. I mean, probably drug overdose and heart issues and yeah. a variety of struggles. Um, but his nice guy, Eddie, as the son, don't talk, don't say, quit pointing that gun at my dad. Like, just, my dad. yeah, just, oh, <laughs> it's, it's so good. It's so good. Oh, man. Uh, there's so much dialogue in this that's like, you know, every time I hear it, I think like I can like I'll, I'll, every time I see Harvey Keitel in this movie, all I hear is like, you're going to be OK. Yes. It's so funny. It's just indelible, you know. You yes. Know. Yes. OK, so, uh, here we okay. go. I got some stats about the movie. Oh, here we go. Stats, 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 stats. Uh, Reservoir Dogs opened on October 9th, 1992. I can't imagine. It opened probably in one theater. <laughs> on October, October 9th. Did it have a good festival? I mean, was it like exciting? Yeah, it was a Sundance. Like it won. Yeah, it something, right? Like um, Sundance or something. I thought it, it did. It won one. I know Pulp Fiction did. Pulp Fiction. Your re- your research on this this episode is pretty terrible. Oh, I don't I don't so. research anything. <laughs> 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 okay, so October 9th, nineteen ninety two. Uh, this day in nine oh two one oh. Yeah, uh, we have arrived at season three, episode ten, entitled "Home and Away." The threat of gang violence cancels a football game with a South Central school. Brenda plans the year's first big dance. 
and invites students from the other school to come. <laughs> oh, that sounds like a very special 90210. I think uh, uh, someone had just watched Boys in the Hood and they were like, yeah, oh, we've got to do, so. spe- do a special episode. Yeah, we're in Los Angeles. <laughs> we're pretending like this whole other part of L.A. doesn't exist. Oh, man. Oh, okay. man. Okay. Uh, good try, Brenda. Yeah, good really try. lasted. You they ended up with a lot of long standing black friends this on that a, show. This is a real Kylie Jenner with a can of Pepsi moment here. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right, yeah. uh, Reservoir Dogs domestic gross of three million dollars, making it the number 136th grossing movie of 1992. Okay, what's happening? There we go. Just three million dollars. I think I can actually see one of your dollars in that domestic. You think you can see it? Yeah, it's right there. I think I know which one is yours. Uh, it is the number seven thousand three hundred and eighteenth top grossing movie of all time. Between, Here, let me let me go ahead and open up IMDb real quick. Okay, yes. Bro, what's you are going to need as much help as I can give you. Here we go. Okay, okay. It comes between a documentary called Unzipped. Do you know what unzipped is? Is it about the fashion industry? It is. It is a documentary about Isaac Mizrahi, specifically about Isaac Mizrahi. But I could build Roseanne Barr. Just because. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm looking at the poster, it looks like a little Linda Evangelista. All right. And some Naomi Campbell. Okay. Naomi Campbell. So we're talking like, we're talking Unhooked, around time Unhooked, undressed, unhinged. Behind the seams of the world of high fashion. Wow. All right. Wow. So you get that, you get Reservoir Dogs, and then you also get Young Rong, a.k.a. the Admiral, colon, Roaring Currents, which, after looking it up and doing a lot of research, I have determined is a Korean war movie. <laughs> I am I am looking at the listing. Admiral Yi Sun faces a tough challenge when he is forced to defend his nation with just 13 battleships against 300 Japanese enemy ships in a the battle of Mai Yong Mai Yong. That's my yeah. attempt. Um, so this is a film Dunkirk. set in 1597. Yeah, it? there you go. Korean Dunkirk. Korean Dunkirk. Korean Dunkirk. Okay. And unzipped and But it came out in 2014. Okay. So, so, so Fort Mary Kill, Myung Rong, Reservoir Dogs, unzipped. Well, obviously, I'm going to marry Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, probably. Probably. Obviously. Yeah. I'm probably going to flirt with the Admiral. <laughs> then I'm going to kill the Isaac Mizrahi documentary. Ding, ding, ding. We we are in complete agreement here. I'm curious about the Admiral thing, so I'll check that out. Unzipped, there's... I'll just watch Project Runway. Thank you very much. Yeah, it feels a little early in Isaac Mizrahi's career to be doing a full-on documentary. That's right. That's right. Just gonna say, it feels a little early. Yeah. Reservoir Dogs has a 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. Okay. What do you think uh Raj thought Reservoir Dogs? Oh man, this is this is going to be pushing him into new areas. I don't this know is how tough. he's going to feel tough about one. it. This is a tough one for Raj. 
I'm going to feel like it's not, it's not a top score. I think it might be a little bit under. You are correct. Uh, Roger Ebert's uh, sentence here says the movie feels like it's going to be terrific, but Tarantino's script doesn't have much curiosity about these guys. Two and a half out of four stars. Hmm. So he's laying it at the feet of Tarantino. Good, good pitch. Good setup or execution. That's what Raj says. He wants more about the guys. Yeah. Interesting. I bet if Raj went back and watched this movie again, I bet his score would be different. I think that's probably. This sounds like a very in the moment Roger Ebert. Even without like, you know, Tarantino worship or whatever. I do feel like it would be a little different. Oh, we've got Janet Maslin back on this one. Oh, hooray. Right, what's she is saying? She says Reservoir Dogs, the only other film Tarantino. Wait, did I take this from something else? I may have taken this from a different article <laughs> that was written far after the fact. Yeah, that was written about like something else. Uh, she says Reservoir is this Dogs. Like, is this like in the Bible when they insert all the stuff about Passover? Right, yeah, this is like, Moses this telling is... everybody we gotta go. This is Maslin writing about Inglorious Bastards, but then oh making God. reference to Reservoir Okay, all right. All Reservoir right. Dogs, the only other film he has written and directed. He also wrote True Romance and has a story credit on Natural Born Killers. Offered only a glimmer of the high style with which he now conjures lowlifes. So she's talking about Tarantino. Okay, so in a write-up about Tarantino... She says that he shows low lifes in high style. Tarantino does. All right. So he glamorizes low. Lives. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Sure. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Jay. Yes. Yes. He tries I, to make them more interesting. Here's yes. what I'm guessing: there probably weren't a ton of reviews of Reservoir Dogs in 19. 19- I think that is probably true. How did it do at the Oscars? It had no wins. It had no nominations. That's the Oscars didn't know this movie existed, but the 90 year olds at the, you know, that were making up the Academy, the voting block of the Academy, yes. had no idea that this movie actually nope. opened in 1919. Nope. Uh, but Betsy, it won three independent spirit awards. Oh, would you like to guess what independent spirit awards Reservoir Dogs won? Screenplay? Not screenplay, but best director for Quentin. Oh, okay. 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 Um, it's got to be an acting one in here. It is an acting one. Is it Kaitel? It's not Kaitel. Is it Buscemi? It's, it's not. It's best supporting male. Who do you think would be best supporting male? I don't know. Who oh, is wait, it? Did you say, did you say Bushimi? I, I did. I asked about him. Oh, I talked over you. <laughs> Thanks. Yes. Thanks a lot. Yes, it was best supporting male Steve Bushimi. Sorry. There we go. Thank God. Oh, God. I don't know. I thought, I, like, I heard you say. Listeners, Steve, it is just like. like being around a table in a diner. He's barely listening. <laughs> I heard you say Jimmy, and I was like, Jimmy? <laughs> Jimmy. I mean, we're stepped away. There's a Joe in this movie. I mean, we're steps away from it, Jimmy. <laughs> okay, uh, one last one, and it's a big one. Maybe the biggest one? Or, like, oh. the biggest one of Jace? Best film? Yeah, kind of. Best first feature. 
Oh, okay. Speakers. There we go. Yeah, at the yeah. Independent Spirit Awards. So they, a good old, a good old attaboy. Attaboy <laughs> yeah. there. This Tarantino, Tarantino kid is going places. He's going places. We really have a good <laughs> feeling about him. Gonna keep my eye on you, Went. Young man. <laughs> you guys been listening to K. Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s weekend? Oh, yeah, man. It's been great, isn't it? You believe the songs they've been playing? You know what I heard the other day? Heartbeat, it's a love beat by Little Tony DeFranco and the Franco family. Man, I haven't heard that song since I was in the fifth grade. When I was coming down here, the night the lights went out in Georgia came on. I ain't heard that song since it was big. When it was big, I must have heard it a million trillion times. This is the first time I ever realized that the girl singing the song is the one who shot Andy. Wait, I mean, you didn't know that Vicki Lawrence was the one who shot Andy? You thought it was the cheating wife shot Andy. Yeah, but they said that at the end of the song. Yeah, I know. I just heard it. That's what I'm talking about. You do I must have zoned out during that party. All fun. right. I'll take care of the check. You guys can get the tip. Should be about a buck a piece. Okay, let's talk about the lasting legacy of this movie. There's so much. I So actually what I sort of came away with, but we can go in a lot of different directions. Sure. What I wrote down was the art of the homage, right? It's like this idea of um, movies as homage to what came before and like creators wanting to make their own mean streets or their own Mm. um the killing which is really what this movie is probably riffing on the most right Mm -hmm. is uh the killing by kubrick so it's like it's this idea of uh and and you know lucas does this too like lucas is like a big fan of french new wave cinema in the 70s but he also loves like buck rogers and serial movies from the 40s and so he just blends the two things together into a movie called star wars and then like his career goes nuts after that like and the same thing with indiana jones right um it's this idea of like movies are constantly in dialogue with its own history where it's like new creators are constantly paying homage to what it is that made them want to make movies in the first place. And that's what well, it feels and I th- like. Yeah. And it feels like we now have enough, enough different genres and different stuff happening that then you can start, the Venn diagrams can start getting much more complicated and interesting. Mm-hmm. That's why I think there's elements of this that feel like a passing of the baton in some way. I mean, even though Tarantino, I mean, I don't know what his age difference is from, you know, a Spielberg, you know, he's not in the same movie making generation. Right. So mm-hmm. even though we're all together, um, but he's, it's just this different, it's, it's, it's this passing of things. It's in the same way you felt about Soderbergh. It's in the, these similar kind of like now this new generation of filmmakers and this, this being this indie thing. And that's kind of what we've, what we've also talked about with this film is mm-hmm. You know, we're watching the growth of indie music at this time and the grunge stuff. And I think this also feeds into some of that culturally that's going on as well. Let's be raw. Let's be real. Let's talk the way we talk. Let's do the things, you know, mm-hmm. let's push censorship. Let's, let's, you know, let's push film ratings. Let's push music ratings, video game ratings. You know, so it's like, it's not necessarily in a way that I feel like it's taking us into this, this realm of vulgarity. I think they would look at it as taking us into a realm of reality. Mm-hmm. or heightened reality for entertainment purposes that I think will start to permeate, right? So that now 
in the creation of Reservoir Dogs, which is this hybrid of these other things, it becomes its own thing. Right. And then someone later on can take that and say, oh, well, I'm influenced by this and this, and this is what I'm doing. And Yeah, and it, it, you know... It, it's also, it's a, one more thing, it's also really, there. you could do this as a play. Mm-hmm. I feel like you could do this on the stage, and it feels similar. Yeah, there's a lot of Tarantino stuff. Did you ever see The Hateful Eight when it came, the, mm-hmm. no, I didn't the see Western that. that he did? So mm-hmm. The Hateful Eight is really fascinating because it is really a play. Like, that's what it is. But it's also a remake of The Thing, <laughs> which mm. is, it's a, it's a Western sort of grounded remake of the movie The Thing by John Carpenter. With and body snatching? Well, no, it's like, um, it's it's basically, it's a group of people that are stuck in a room Mm -hmm. Uh, in the middle of a blizzard and none of them are who you think they are. You're right. All of them have like some kind of hidden agenda or motive. And so it becomes, uh, it becomes like this ultra paranoid, like who amongst us is the, you know, is the bounty hunter or the killer or the law enforcement kind of like what's going on with reservoir dogs here. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like, who who is the mall? Uh, and that's, it, you know, and it's so funny because it's like, once you see it as a remake of The Thing, you can't see it as anything else. And he even went so far as to cast Kurt Russell in the movie. So it's yeah. literally like The Thing. <laughs> and it's like, um, it becomes like this question. I mean, the big question that I have about all of this stuff is like, what happens when popular art just becomes copies of copies, you know? You have an original piece of art, you make a copy of it, but then you make a copy of that copy and a copy of that copy and a copy of that copy. And eventually, like, it kind of looks like art, but it also kind of looks like a mess at the same time. It's a real standout. I think I hadn't I hadn't I hadn't re-experienced it in a while. And just to to put a bow on the homage copycat conversation Mm -hmm. do you think there are any more original ideas like when was the last time that you went away from a movie thinking man that was a really original concept that that movie you made me watch that (laughs) one (laughs) 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 it did have some echoes of other things i've seen but i mean it's it's hard when you're kind of basing narratives off of human emotion and conflict and yeah, I think things are always echoes. I think. Yeah, but I think it's. So. I think it's as for me, it's it's as we discover this and unearth the stories of people whose stories are not being told, and I think that that process feels like it's ongoing. All of, it's just ongoing. That there's yeah. always a story that we're not that we're ignoring. There's a primary source that we're not engaging with. You know, there's all of these things all the time that we're just kind of like, oh, you know, that's over there. But we'll eventually, we eventually get it back. Like even something like everything everywhere all at once. It's like, you know, that was kind of heralded last year. It's like, oh, wow. Like this is a very sort of original Mm -hmm. story. And in a lot of ways it was like it was, it was a multiverse story. But, you know, it's kind of like, um, like there were echoes of a little bit of like back to the future stuff. There was like, you know you could see some of the influences to it. The the last image that like stands out in my head of like, I have never seen anything like that was, did you see uh parasite Bong Joon-ho's? Mm-hmm. Yes. Movie? 
so there was a scene in Parasite towards the end of the movie where like uh, this poor family, they're living like underneath the ground and like this flood comes and like floods their apartment. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene of like the, there's a, the girl of the family, right? So the family unit is like father, mother, son, daughter. And the daughter is like sitting on a toilet that's like overflowing with like flood water. And she like reaches in the tank and pulls out a pack of cigarettes and like lights a cigarette as as the world is like totally falling apart around her. And -hmm. I remember seeing that scene and thinking I've, I've never seen a better shot than that. Like in the last 10 years of cinema, like it is like, that's perfect. And then Bong Joon-ho gets up at the Oscars and he's like, you know, all of the shots in this movie are a credit to Martin Scorsese. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, there you go. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I don't know if original ideas exist anymore. <laughs> so. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, so who is well, this movie for? Then? I think it's, you know, I, I it's hard for me to divorce my experience as, as a Gen X person watching this and being like, wow, story making can be so raw and interesting. Like that mm-hmm. was kind of my experience with it. It's for Gen Xers to discover a new piece of cinema that horrifies their parents. Right. Yeah. And, and leads to then, you know, cultural conversations about violence and yeah, swearing and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that is the thing. It's like we talked about the problematic language in this movie. But this idea of bad people doing bad things, like Mm -hmm. that becomes the narrative of prestige TV shows for like the next 25 years, 30 years. You know, it's like um, by the time this movie has the opportunity to sort of weave its way into creator culture and stuff like that, all of a sudden it's like the Sopranos pops up and Breaking Bad Mm -hmm. pops up. And it's just like, and we just finished Succession this year. It's just like, you just get this run of bad people doing bad things. And it's hard not to sort of cite this as one of those early inspirations for Mm -hmm. the anti-hero. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, sure. I wrote that this movie was for film bros. So I'm glad that you... Well, can we get to why, who, how my sister's experience with this movie? Um, I believe I, yeah, I texted her because we, we had talked about it. And I was like, you got to remind me. And she said, made to watch it by boyfriends and guy friends. Usually late night in college. So watched it in 30 minute snippets. Because <laughs> she's about four years younger than us. It's Emily's the player. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. It is. Wow. Um, okay, so with that, I just said, want to say that is an overall theme is film bros in this whole series. This has, that we've been, been, doing. This has been our film bro year. Um, this yeah. has been a big film bro year for us. I'm, I'm looking ahead and seeing if there's like any relief. I don't think there is. <laughs> there's no relief. Well, listen, Greg, it's the 1990s. You may have That's had right. Lil- Lilith Fair, but it's not going to relieve Sorry. us from film bro movies. That's right. Harvey Keitel is dictating the content at this point. So. I mean, not Harvey Keitel. Yeah. Harvey Harvey Weinstein. Oh, uh, yep. Okay. Uh, okay. So then what is your rating for this movie out of five? I am giving it a 4.5. Wow. 4.5? Yep. 
Okay. Would you say 4.5? Wait, I think you can put your player score on here. I give the player a three. Huh. It is above League of Their Own under so, X. Reservoir Dogs, above League of Their Own. Yes, Got yes. Got it. What about you? I give it a four. Okay. Out of five. I said it's freaking Reservoir Dogs. So, I mean, it's good. And it created most of what we've been watching for the last 30 years. I really do believe that. I think Tarantino yeah, has been so influential over like what kinds mm-hmm. of movies people make uh, moving forward. Agreed. Yeah. Um, but, you know, but it's not like Tarantino's. He's got better movies coming. <laughs> down the yes. Yes. Yeah. So four out of five sounds good. Um, All right, cool. Why did you nominate this movie? This was a Betsy pick, you guys. Super, not a film super, bro. Not, not a film bro. bro. Super influential. Super influential. Yeah. Just, yeah. Also a movie I, can't, I wanted to watch again. What do you think Billy Crystal said about this in his Oscars month? <laughs> Billy Crystal he, had he, no idea this movie existed. <laughs> no, he had no idea. He had no idea. He didn't know that the whole ethos of Hollywood was about to change. He had no idea. No. Yeah, no, yeah, no clue. No clue. clue. Um, Okay. And we already talked about what Emily said. So that means that's it. We're done. That's it. Reservoir. Next up. Next up. Next up. (laughs) Next up. New Papa to be. New Dad to be. Al Pacino gets his Oscar finally. Fine for this, for this. That's right. It's going to be sad. Uh, Proud, about to be new parent, Al Pacino. Scent of a Woman is our next movie. Betsy, are you ready? You ready for the Pacino of it all? I am. I'll try to get ready. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. (laughs) All right. Uh, Betsy, thank you for taking me back to the safe house. Are you sure I shouldn't just go to the hospital? Are you you sure I'm going to be okay? Joe's going to come and we're going to get a doctor and everything will be fine. (laughs) All right. I'm okay. You're okay. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. (laughs) All right. We'll see you next time. Bye. As K Billy's super sounds of the 70s weekend just keeps on trucking. Oh,